All right, well, let me invite you to find your seats as we continue our worship this morning. And as we do, let me invite Hannah Kim to do our scripture reading for us. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Hannah. People, can't live with them, can't live without them. People give us life's greatest joy, but they also inflict the greatest pain. Sometimes the pain can be so deep and so great that it makes you want to hide and withdraw. I've been watching recently those survival shows out in nature, and there's something appealing about that, living all alone. Of course, as Christians, such a life is not an option for us. You cannot be united to Jesus, the head, without also simultaneously being united to his body. Can you picture someone united to a head without being a part of the body? That's a grotesque figure. You cannot have God as father without also having brothers and sisters. It's a package deal. There's a reason why when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He not only answered that question, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, but unsolicited, he also tacked on the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Why? It's because Jesus knew that there would be a temptation for man to only love God at the exclusion of neighbor. And yet, by giving us both commands, Jesus, in a way, is telling us, if you love God, you will love neighbor. In fact, you love God by loving neighbor. At New Life, the command to love neighbor takes on an added wrinkle. You see, one of the core values of our church is diversity. Diversity is a value because we believe God's kingdom and glory is brilliantly displayed when people across cultures, ethnicities, and socioeconomic backgrounds gather together to worship the one true living God and to do life with one another. We believe the image of God is more fully and deeply revealed when our church reflects the diversity of our city. And last time I looked at Irvine, it's a quite a diverse city. Now, achieving that vision does not come without 
difficulty. We're all familiar with sociological principles where birds of a feather flock together. It's much easier to befriend and do life with someone who looks like you, grew up like you, and eats the same food as you. And even that's hard. Throw in now the the added wrinkle of diversity and try to deepen and befriend those who don't look like you, who didn't grow up like you, who faced challenges growing up that are nothing close to the challenges you face. Thankfully, though, the challenges of diversity that we face here at our church is nothing unique. It's not new. In the Ephesian church, they too had the same challenge. Asia Minor was a melting pot of different cultures and ethnicities. And in fact, a big chunk of the uh, beginning chapters of Ephesians address the the union and the uniting of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Now, what's interesting is I'm sure there were pragmatic reasons, perhaps some people wanting a Jewish Christian church on one side of the street, and let's set up a Gentile Christian church on the other side of the street. Let's make it easy for everyone so that people can just do life with people who look like them. But no, in the Ephesian church, we see all that diversity coming together. Why? Well, before I answer that question, let me first make a few comments as to where we are in the book of Ephesians. We have arrived at a pivotal point. We have arrived at the halfway point of this book as we begin chapter 4. Up until now, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul has primarily focused on the glories of our salvation. Paul's focused on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Now, in chapters 4 through 6, the focus shifts. Instead of focusing on what God has done for us, the focus is on what we must do for God. And so it shifts from what we believe to how we behave. It shifts from the principles of our salvation to the practice of our salvation. And in the remaining chapters, Paul's going to address many important aspects of the Christian life. He's going to address marriage. He's going to address family. He's going to address how to pray, how to worship, spiritual gifts, uh, uh, spiritual warfare. But notice that of all these topics, what rises to the top? What he gives first attention to? In the opening verses of chapter 4, he talks about the church's unity, underscoring how important unity is to our God. This call is found in verse 3 where Paul says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
And how are we to keep this unity? Well, the how is found in verse 2. Paul tells us, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. If we're going to live in unity, says Paul, you're going to have to cultivate humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. Now, I want you to know that Paul was a realist. He wasn't some idealist who had this fanciful depiction of what the church looks like. No, Paul was a a church planter. He was a discipler. He was intimately aware with how dysfunctional the church can be. He knew that the church was a hospital for sinners rather than a museum for saints. This sober understanding of the church is reflected in his word choice in verse 2. The phrase translated as bear with one another, that word translated as bear, does not have in mind bearing with annoying people. That person who chews too loud, that person who's shaking his leg, maybe even right now in worship. No, that word bear has in mind bearing with fools. Fools. It has in mind bearing with people that some call EGRs, extra grace required people. People who are difficult to love. Arrogant people. Controlling people. Selfish people. Fake people. Not life-giving people, but soul-sucking people. If we're going to live in unity with fellow brothers and sisters, with fellow sinners, we will need humility, gentleness, and patience. We will need to bear with one another in love. Now, I can spend the rest of my time unpacking for you what it looks like to be humble, what it looks like to be gentle, how to bear with one another in love. But in my experience, the reason why community breaks down is not because we don't know how to live in peace. It breaks down because we don't want to live in peace. We don't want to expend the energy and effort necessary to repair relationships, to restore relationships, to build relationships. We know what we're supposed to do. We just don't want to do it. Why should I do life with you? I'm so busy. I've got other priorities. And so it's not a knowledge problem that leads to relational breakdown. It's a motivation problem. So instead of focusing on verse 2, what I want to focus on is verses 4 through 6. Because in verses 4 through 6, Paul doesn't talk about how to keep our unity, but why. Let's look at verses 4 through 6 again. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now, when you read these three verses, what jumps out at you? 
It's the word one, right? It's everywhere. You find it seven times, which isn't accidental. It's the, the number for perfection, completion. It's all over the place. What Paul is trying to help us to see is instead of fixating on those things that we may not like about that other individual, he wants us to see what we have in common with that other individual. We have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father. Now, in addition to the prevalence of the word one, there's something else quite unique about these verses. There aren't too many passages in Scripture where we find this, but we do find it here, and when you do see it, it's worth paying attention to. What is unique about our passage? This is one of those rare passages where you, where you find each person of the Trinity. You find God the Spirit in verse 4, God the Son in verse 5, and God the Father in verse 6. So embedded in all these ones, you find the Trinity. Now, for those of you who are relatively new to Christianity, the Trinity is one of those central tenets of the faith that makes Christianity utterly unique of all the world's conceptions of God. The Bible teaches us very clearly that there is only one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 declares, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. At the same time, the Bible clearly teaches that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Not only that, but the Bible clearly teaches us that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are distinct from one another. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, and vice versa. And hence, based on the clear teaching of the Bible, we have come up with the Trinity. There is one God in three persons who are distinct from one another and yet are equal in substance, power, and glory. And over the years, people have tried to explain the Trinity through various metaphors and illustrations. Perhaps you've come across someone telling you that the Trinity is like an egg. You have the shell, the yolk, and the white part. By the way, what is the name for the white part? It needs a name right? Or the Trinity is like the three phases of water, uh, liquid, uh, water, uh, ice, and gas, right? Now, I appreciate the attempts to try to explain the Trinity, but the problem is there's nothing on earth that is like the Trinity, and all these metaphors fall short. And in the wake of all of these illustrations, the here begins to associate the Trinity with an intellectual puzzle. When you think of Trinity, you automatically revert to a mystery for nerds to dwell about on their free time, right? The Trinity is for seminary students or pastors to write a PhD paper on. But for me, the average Christian, that's not for me. I'm not going to dip my toes in that water. 
But if you disregard the Trinity, you starve yourself of your faith. Michael Reeves, in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, makes the observation that if you were to say God is love, you'll get a lot of people nodding their heads. You'll get Christians and non-Christians alike saying, amen, God is love. But the moment you say God is a trinity, you get blank stares, glazed look. But Reeves makes the observation, did you know that you can't have God as love without God as a trinity? Did you know that the reason why God is love is specifically because he is triune? You can't be love if there's no one to love. You see, a lot of times we, we make, have this mistaken idea that before creation, God was some lonely, isolated being bored out of his mind. And so he said to himself, you know what, instead of just being all alone, let me create this world. Let me create someone in my image. And after creating man, all of a sudden, he's feeling these emotions bubbling up on the inside and says, I think that's what love is. It's kind of like us dads. For moms, they've got nine months to bond with the baby. And so when the baby is born, they're immediately crying and in love. For dads, we're like, who are you, right? We're holding this baby, and it's strange. And it grows over time, that love and affection. And sometimes we think that's, that's how God's love developed over time. But that's not the case. What we see in, in, uh, in the Bible is that God has always eternally existed in loving relationship. Hear what Reeves says. Uh, I love this quote. For it is only when you grasp what it means for God to be a trinity that you really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. If the Trinity were something we could shave off God, we would not be relieving him of some irksome weight. We would be sharing him of precisely what is so delightful about him. There never was a time where God was lonely. He has always existed in relationship. And the type of relationship he has eternally enjoyed is a relationship of perfect love, joy, and peace. Listen to how Jesus describes his relationship to the Father. In John 17, 24, Jesus says, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. 
John 3, 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. John 5, verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. Matthew 3, 16 through 17, when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The scriptures are so clear that the father is in love with the son. It seems as if every time Jesus talks about his father, he has to insert in, by the way, he loves me. Every time he thinks of his father, he thinks and and dwells on the Father's love for him. How about the Son? John 14, 31, on the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do as the Father commanded me. John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I love the Father so much that doing what he wants me to do is like eating a ribeye steak. It gives me so much pleasure. I love my father. How about the spirit? Well, notice how at Jesus' baptism, that before the father pronounces, this is my beloved son, what does he do? He sends the spirit and it dwells upon Jesus like a dove. The father expresses his love for the Son through the Spirit. Romans 5, verse 5, God pours his love into our hearts through the Spirit. Romans 8, the Spirit fills our hearts and enables us to cry, Abba, Father. It awakens us to the Father's love. God's love and joy is communicated through the Spirit. And so when you look at each person of the Trinity, what you witness is a divine dance of three persons working harmoniously together in loving joy. It's beautiful. The closest thing we have on earth that can express the harmony and the unity of, of the, the three persons working together that I can think of is music. In music, you have the, the blending of various tones and notes coming from different instruments converging together to produce a sound that stirs the soul. Every note and every instrument is vital to produce that beauty. And yet they work so harmoniously together. Johann Sebastian Bach was a committed follower of Jesus. And the Trinity served as the impetus for his music. He would write how 
he, he would write his symphonies trying to capture and, community and, and, and communicate the cosmic harmony that exists between the three persons of the Trinity. He would imagine that beauty and that harmony that the Trinity has with one another and says, how can I communicate that and broadcast that? And that's why he wrote his music. And so do you see why community is so important to God? Do you see why he's called us to live out our faith within the body of Christ? Our God exists in a cosmic symphony. He exists in loving relationship. It's who he is. It's all he's ever known. And so when we place our faith in Jesus, God invites us to join him in that cosmic dance so that we too can experience what he's been experiencing through all eternity. Now what I love about the Trinity is that it avoids the pitfalls of unity, and individuality we see in this world. Here's what I mean. In more traditional societies, what is lionized, what is championed, is when an individual sacrifices for the greater good. When an individual sacrifices for the greater community. For example, I'm not sure if this still happens today, but based on my deep research of Korean dramas, uh, in Korea, it was common that if you grew up in a poor family and can't afford to go to college, one of the siblings would sacrifice themselves and work so that another sibling can afford to go to college. You have an individual sacrificing themselves for the greater family. In America, you never hear of that happening. If you're poor, no one goes to college, right? That's only fair, because that's what Western societies value, individual justice. But in Korea, you sacrifice yourself for the greater good. But what happens is that individual often becomes suppressed and crushed for the sake of community, and you'll meet that sibling later filled with resentment and bitterness. Why did I have to give up my dream? The same is true with abusive relationships, codependent relationships. You have, for the sake of the whole, one partner asking the other to crush themselves and to stay in a very toxic relationship. An individual is sacrificed at the altar of community. But modern Western societies have its own issues, doesn't it? In Western societies, the individual is valued at the expense of the community. What is lionized in our culture is when someone steps out in pursuit of their self-actualization, regardless of the consequences it has on the greater community. And so, 
Where do you draw the line between courageous self-assertion and just simple selfishness? Recently, I've been trying to help someone I know deal with the fallout of her husband leaving the marriage because he's come to the realization I need to find myself, and I think I was hasty in getting married and fathering a child with you. I need me to be me, and I don't think me is being a part of this family. Where does that line blur between courage and selfishness? And so the community is sacrificed and crushed at the altar of individuality. But here, in the Trinity, neither the individual or the collective is crushed. God the Father, Son, and Spirit willingly and joyfully give of themselves to one another without compromising their individuality. As author Christopher Watkins says, not to be confused with the actor Christopher Watkins, he writes in his book, Critical Biblical Theory, the threeness is not crushed under the weight of the oneness, neither is the oneness destroyed for the sake of the threeness. The Son joyfully submits to the Father, the Father and Spirit, uh, a Son joyfully sends the Spirit. In fact, you can argue that the personhood of the Father, Son, and Spirit is enhanced and magnified through their submission and service to one another. Serving each other does not subtract from who they are, it augments who they are. Do we not see this and hear this at funerals? When people give their eulogies, do they not reflect on how the person who has passed gave of themselves was selfless? sacrifice time and energy to show up and be there for us. Their giving of themselves to their loved ones, to community, did not detract from their personhood. It augmented who they were. In the same way, here in the local church, God is inviting us to step out of our lonely, isolated way of life and to step into community. Well, that means there's going to be expectations. That means I can't just do what I want. Yes, there are interests that you might have to give up for the sake of the greater body of Christ. But when you step out into faith and give of yourself, what happens? You start mirroring the Trinity. 
And when you mirror the Trinity, you're not becoming less of yourself, you're becoming more of yourself because you were created in the image of God. God is bringing you back to what you were intended to be, someone living in harmony with others. I wonder if this is the reason why team sports are so great to be a part of. In a team, what you have are individuals putting their egos aside, giving of themselves to one another for a greater good and vision and calling, everyone playing their role so that when you win, when everything is synced together, the thrill and joy of celebration is far greater than a bowler who wins a match or even a tennis player. There's something about that collective effort that enhances the joy, and I wonder if that comes from being made in the image of a triune God. Dear friends, unity and harmony describes the essence of who God is. Community is the very essence of his being, Loving relationship is all he's ever known. That's why we ought to strive to keep and promote that unity here in the local church. That's why we need to bear with one another. That's why we need to forgive one another. That's why we need to continue to put effort into this church, this body. And so if you're not plugged in, if you feel like you're on the outskirts, I want to encourage you this fall, this next month, when we start life groups, sign up. Men, sign up for the men's retreat. Unity is important to our faith. It's vital. And so uh, may the Lord minister to our hearts through his word. Let's pray. Father, when we see the Trinity, when we see how each person is giving of themselves for one another, our hearts are stirred. We say to ourselves, I want that. I want to be a part of a community that does that, a life-giving community, not a soul-crushing one. Father, we pray that that reality that you've experienced would be made known here at New Life, that in our community, we would get a foretaste of your triune love as we serve one another, as we do life together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.